Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. Time flies when you're learning super cool stuff. I'm Nate. And I'm Callie. If you're dropping in for the first time, welcome to Curiosity, where we aim to blow your mind by helping you to grow your mind. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back. Today, you'll learn about the relationship between the microbacteria in our gut and chronic fatigue syndrome, the physical benefits of positive thinking, and how a new discovery reveals that wine has been around for way longer than we initially thought. Without further ado, let's satisfy some curiosity. All right, it is time to talk about our favorite subject again. Ooh, uh, pills made out of poop. No, microplastics. Ooh, climate change? All of the above? None of the above. Hmm. We're talking about the human microbiome again. Hmm. A staggering collection of all the tiny organisms in our gut, like bacteria or viruses or even fungi, that affect our physical and mental health in ways both positive and negative. We've talked before about how the microbiome is made. We've talked about how tomatoes are good for your gut health and can improve the balance of good versus bad bacteria in the gut. We've even talked about how microbiome imbalances can make your mental health suffer. But a new study from Cell Host and Microbe has discovered something else about the human microbiome that you're really going to need to know. I don't know. After talking about physical health, mental health, and uh, tomatoes, what else could we possibly not already know about the microbiome? All right. Have you ever heard of the disease myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, or MECFS for short? It's bad. It's, it's like really bad. The National Institute of Health lists a few of its symptoms as fatigue, sleep disturbance, cognitive difficulties, pain, and gastrointestinal issues. All of these symptoms are bad enough on their own, but NIH continues by saying the symptoms are debilitating. Nobody knew where MECFS came from, though, until we discovered recently that it very likely stems from the human microbiome. I actually have heard of this mostly because there is a YouTube content creator I follow called The Physics Girl who has been suffering from this for several months now. Yeah. Yeah, it seems really rough. I had not heard that it was related to the microbiome, though, so that's one more way that the microbiome is trying to attack me. Darn microbiome. Uh, How did they figure this one out? Well, the National Institute of Health actually paired not one, but two studies on the various ways our microbiomes play a part in contributing to or helping us identify diseases. The first study was led by a New York researcher named Brent L. Williams from Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. His team studied how the genes were put together in fecal samples collected from 106 people with MECFS. These samples were compared to 91 healthier control samples, and what they found was that the stool samples of people with MECFS had abnormally low levels of a number of kind of bacteria compared to the controls. But that's a good thing, right? No, no, no. These were the good kind of bacteria. Each of them together create a kind of fatty acid known as biuterate, which helps keep our guts nice and healthy. It's the main energy source for all the cells that line our stomach and helps our gut's immune system from falling apart. What's worse is that with the depleted numbers of biuterates, there was an increase in nine other bacteria associated with MECFS, and those bacteria are linked to autoimmune disorders or inflammatory bowel disease. So let me ask the chicken and the egg question. Which came first, the bacteria or the disease? We don't actually know yet. What we do know is that the study says these sort of imbalances can actually be used as biomarkers for MECFS classification, meaning we can finally figure out what to target during treatment as well as find better treatment methods in general. Okay, that's great. Didn't you say there was another study? Yeah, there was, at the Jackson Laboratory in Connecticut. A team here was studying the progression of microbiome abnormalities throughout different stages of MECFS. They gathered data, as well as stool and blood samples, from 149 MECFS patients. But this time, they broke the patients down into ranges. 
There were 74 who had been diagnosed within the last four years, known as short-term patients. 75 had been diagnosed over a decade ago, known as long-term patients, and 79 controls without ME-CFS at all. Why did they do that? To see whether the patient's microbiome health changed over time, and in general, it did. Short-termers had less diversity of the microbes in their guts, while long-termers had gut health much more similar to the controls. Now, just like the other study, most of the biuterate-producing bacteria were at lower levels in each MECFS group, especially the short-termers. But the discovery that long-termers were able to eventually develop a relatively healthy microbiome was pretty huge. They still had huge symptoms of MECFS and some other irregularities, but their guts were a bit more stable than short-term groups. Okay, and all of this means what? Also not clear yet, but all of this data paints us the clearest picture to date on the link between MECFS and the microbiome. By combining the efforts of these two studies, we could one day be able to create new treatments for people with MECFS so that they can have a better quality of life, especially for the long-termers who have had to suffer from this disease for so long and yet have a few signs of a stable microbiome. If we could figure out a way to reverse some of the hallmarks of MECFS, maybe we could get rid of it altogether. I've had that song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, stuck in my head all day. You know, (laughs) that one. Anyway, today I learned that he doesn't need to tell us to not worry and be happy because science says that if we can stop worrying, we're practically guaranteed happiness. So two thoughts on the matter. First off, always forget how good you are whistling. Very impressive. Next, are you telling me that The whole answer here is don't worry and you'll solve the mental health crisis. Like, how does that work? Uh, No, 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 no. No, you're not going to fix mental health if you tell yourself not to worry. Depression, unfortunately, doesn't work like that. But there's a staggering amount of research suggesting that there's a pretty sizable link between people who are naturally optimistic and a reduced risk of heart disease, as well as increases in lung health. Plus, optimistic people are less likely to die early from a cancer diagnosis And most importantly, they have a higher life expectancy than basically anyone else living, on average, past the age of 90. Whoa. Okay. And that's all because of optimism? How do you even study something like that? Well, like I said, there have been a lot of studies reaching that same conclusion over time. But one of the most recent was from 2022. Backing up a bit, in 1976, a team of researchers at Harvard enlisted around 160,000 women between the ages of 50 and 79, all from a range of different races and ethnicities. They monitored them for the next few decades, and in 2004, the women were given an optimism assessment survey that asked them to rank statements relating to how optimistic they are. After tallying the results, what they found was that all of the most positive women lived 5.4% longer than anybody else, and were a whopping 10% more likely to survive past 90 than their less positive peers. And that was consistent, even when you looked into race and ethnicity or even medical diagnoses like, say, depression? consistent the entire time. You might also be surprised to find that the study actually flew in the face of something we've talked about here before. Exercise and diet didn't actually have much to do with this at all. They were linked to an optimistic attitude less than 25% of the time, leading the researchers to believe that for many people, focusing on our health might be negative for our mental health, even if it's just in subtle ways. But that's just one study. What were some of the other results? Back in 2019, the National Academy of Sciences dropped a study using information on 69,744 women and 1,429 men that associated high optimism with a longer lifespan of anywhere from 11 to 15 percent. 
Unlike the 2022 study, this group was almost exclusively white people, and it was suggested in criticism back then that a more accurate study would need a more diverse sample size, something the 2022 study definitely has. And even back in 2010, a study was done on the relationship between social relationships and mental health that found people were up to 50% more likely to live longer if they had stronger relationships with people. In that case, loneliness was an even worse killer than just negativity. What does that last one have to do with optimism, though? Well, a 2020 study by Gabrielle Bellucci makes the case that lonely people are far more cynical about people and the world than anyone else. So when you add it all up, you find that loneliness leads to negativity, which leads to a higher risk of death. Across all of these studies, the link is clear, even for men, that a positive outlook is associated with a longer life. So, I mean, like, why? What, what is it about a positive outlook that makes your health better? Nobody knows for sure, but a few people do have theories. That 2019 study was done by Luina Lee from Boston University School of Medicine. She believes that people who are naturally positive are more likely to not only have goals, but the confidence to reach those goals. And with that confidence comes a likeliness that those people will develop and keep up with healthier choices in their life. There's also a link between stressful emotions and poor heart health, and someone who isn't angry all the time is already limiting their risk for a stroke or heart attack. I guess my biggest problem with all of this is, have you ever tried to tell someone, don't worry, be happy? I mean, unless you're making a reference to the song, it doesn't actually work. It usually has the opposite effect. Agreed. And the researchers of each of these studies know that, too. One of them even admits that some people are more inclined from birth to be cynical. But it's never too late to teach yourself a few tricks on how to think more positively. Like what? Create some kind of gratitude practice, like keeping a journal and writing down whatever you're thankful for every day. Keep track of all the good things that are happening to you. Maybe use that journal to visualize your best self, where you describe what the future is going to look like when, not if, everything works out for you. Literally all of these things are supported scientifically to have positive effects on your mental health. It's okay to be upset or angry. That, that's normal. But that doesn't mean we can't try not to be, especially since our lives might depend on it. Well, Timon and Pumbaa were right then. It means no worries for the rest of your days. Scientifically accurate Disney songs. Yes. <laughs> so, a recent update in the world of wine. Turns out we've been drinking it for a lot longer than we previously thought. I guess that makes sense to me. It feels like people have been drinking wine and beer since kind of the beginning of time. I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you there. Most historians believed that we started making and drinking wine about 8,000 years ago, but now we are seeing some evidence that grapes were domesticated way, way further back than that. Uh, can you walk me through what domesticating grapes entails? Domestication is basically just the process of turning something wild into something that humans can consume and grow. Okay, gotcha. So how much further back than 8,000 years were we doing this? 11,000 years. And the craziest part is that we have evidence that grapes were domesticated for the first time twice in two unrelated areas. Okay, how did they figure that out? It all started with Dr. Wei Chen from China. Back in 2017, he did an experiment where he sequenced the DNA of roughly 500 different grapevines and figured out a way to track how those grapevines spread from one edge of China to the next. Even better, he figured out how they were able to split off and interbreed with other varieties of grapevine to create brand new breeds. It was a pretty revolutionary study at the time, even with a relatively small sample size. And it wasn't lost on Chen how revolutionary it could be. 
would it be possible maybe to map out all the grapevines of the world throughout history and get an exact time frame that not just wine, but grapes were domesticated for the first time? Well, you know, we love a big dreamer on this show. Yep. And Chen and his pals were some of the biggest around. In 2019, they decided to commit to the bit and go global with their study. They managed to get in touch with 90 scientists from over 70 countries who each sent Chen's team some dried leaves from different grapes local to the regions they surveyed. In total, they received over 3,500 different types of grape samples from across the world. Holy moly, are there really that many types of grapes in the world? I mean, you got to remember that there's a lot that can change the way a plant grows. Quality of the soil, quality of the water, whether pesticides affect the grow, even the climate it's grown in. Every single variety of grape has a special structure to its seeds, actually, that can be mapped out, kind of like a thumbprint, according to the Times of Israel. The Times of Israel also says that by tracking all the unique DNA across the grape cultivars, Chen's team were able to identify two moments in each breed's history to a near-specific time. And those were? The first is when the split happened, so when a new breed was formed and kept spreading while the original also spread. The second was when wild grapes broke away from the domestic ones. That last one is super interesting because that means that once they got far enough back in time, they could figure out almost precisely when grapes became domesticated. 11,000 years ago. Twice. Okay, so I'm still a little bit lost on what you mean by twice. Like I mentioned before, it was believed for a long time that grapes had been domesticated 8,000 or so years ago in the Fertile Crescent, which today is what we know as Iraq, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and Palestine. This study found that wasn't true. 11,000 years ago, grapes were cultivated somewhere in Western Asia, and then over 900 miles away in the Caucasus, which today consists of Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, and parts of Southern Russia, among others. Wow. Okay. How, how did they get the date so wrong? It's not really clear, but Chen thinks it's just another example of common knowledge going unchecked in the history books for too long. In any case, the DNA experiment taught us a lot about ancient history through these grapevines. Uh, for example, the way the vines traveled synced up with what we know about migration routes used by humans around the same time period. And through those routes, we discovered something very interesting. Every modern grape used for wine in Europe is linked back to one specific cultivar from Israel. Israel, huh? Yeah. Israel actually submitted more samples to this study than any other country, taking up nearly 10% of the sample size. Because of the rich selection sent over, Chen and team were able to figure out that around 8,000 years ago, domesticated Israeli grapes were crossbred with some wild Turkish grapes before traveling all over Europe. This crossbreeding event set the stage for a DNA takeover. Whether it's a French Chardonnay or a Spanish-aged Tempranillo, all wine grapes in Europe in the same sample can be linked back with a degree of certainty to this event. That's honestly pretty neat, but what's so special about that? Well, winemakers themselves believe that Israeli wild grapes are going to help wine survive certain extinction from one of our favorite topics on this show. Why would pills made of poop endanger wine? No, no, not poop pills. You keep your poop pills out of my wine. But anyways, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about climate change. Oh. Yeah. Every grape from Israel, whether it's domesticated or wild, has evolved over the years to survive scorching heat waves or droughts. The fact that the Israeli grape has survived for thousands of years through thousands of different cultivars is quite impressive, and some winemakers believe it's the grape that will ensure we have wine from now until the eventual and unfortunate heat death of the world. <laughs> That's how you want to end the story? I am going to toast on the way out, okay? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Let's recap what we learned today to wrap up. 
How many ways can the human microbiome negatively affect our lives? The list never seems to end, and today we discovered another. It might be where the debilitating ME-CFS begins. Two different studies have drawn a correlation between the microbiome and the disease, but unfortunately, we don't yet know if the disease caused the reduction in healthy bacteria or vice versa. Still, in time, we may learn enough about this disease that we could one day eliminate it altogether. Don't worry, be happy? More like, don't worry, make happy. Decades worth of research has culminated in a pretty universal finding that people who maintain a consistent, positive outlook are far more likely to live longer, happier, healthier lives than their cynical peers. It's not 100% clear why, though researchers believe it could be due to lack of stress, meaning less likelihood of any heart complications. Either way, maintaining that good old PMA might not just make you feel better, it might make you live longer. Wine, it's not just something your favorite aunt is obsessed with. It's something that's been around longer than virtually every city on Earth, and a new discovery has been made that it's been around even longer than we previously believed. The nearly 11,000-year history of the domestication of grapes is interesting on its own, but what's more fascinating is that the grapes grown in Israel, of all places, may hold the key to finding breeds of grape that can survive climate change. Curiosity Daily is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Discovery. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we would love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Did you know there's a lost city in the jungles of Cambodia? On Expedition Unknown, Josh Gates takes you around the world as he investigates some of humanity's greatest feats and most iconic legends, like the lost city of the Khmer Empire. As a member of the Explorers Club and with a degree in archaeology, Josh Gates is an all-out adventurer. From jumping out of planes to deep sea diving, there isn't a mystery he'll shy away from. Listen to Expedition Unknown wherever you get your podcasts.